Hi there, I'm Chris Kessling and welcome to Defence Barrister, the podcast on understanding and surviving criminal trials, sentencing and appeals. Today, in episode two, we're going to continue on our journey through the criminal justice system in England and Wales, picking up from where we left off, with our suspects facing an allegation of wounding with intent and about to be interviewed at the police station. If you want to know more about how they arrived at the police station in the first place, what the law is on arrest and what rights are afforded to suspects in police custody, then please go first to episode one and then this episode will make more sense. Before we go further, I'd like to say thank you for the extremely positive response I've had following the introduction and the first episode of this podcast. It makes a real difference and I appreciate it. Thank you. So... As a brief recap, Aidan, Bianca and Connor are alleged to have been involved in a fight outside a nightclub in the early hours of Saturday morning. On one side are ABC, Aidan, Bianca and Connor, and on the other are DEF, Daniel, Ethan and Finn. As Aidan and Daniel squared up to each other, a fist was thrown. We know that Aidan and Daniel then went for each other, heads down and throwing punches, and to a bystander it may have seemed like all six people became involved in what could easily have been no more than an incident of public disorder. But all that changed when, in the midst of it all, a broken bottle hit Daniel's face. He went straight to the ground with serious injuries to his face. As he fell, Aidan made a run for it, followed within moments by his girlfriend Bianca and his good friend Connor. All, as we know, were soon arrested on suspicion of wounding with intent. It's now later on Saturday morning at the police station where Aidan, Bianca and Connor are being held. Opting to make use of their right to legal advice, they've all had a private consultation. Despite the cases I told you about in the last episode, where the police had deliberately eavesdropped on solicitor-client consultations, we can take it in this situation that all three have been afforded the privacy that undoubtedly they are entitled to. We ended the last episode with all three suspects being informed that the allegation they are facing is a serious one, which carries upon conviction a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. In a moment, I'll explain more about this offence. I should mention that at the end of the last episode, I referred to all three suspects as defendants. That was a mistake. At the moment, they are merely suspects. It's only if they're charged that they then enter the criminal court system and they'll become defendants, and that's something we'll find out by the end of this episode. I'm not going to tell you what happens in the individual legal consultations of our three suspects, This would be confidential in each of their cases and would not be disclosed amongst them. However, if they're charged, their defences will become clear when the case moves forward to trial. The one thing that I can mention that would have been explained in the legal consultation of each suspect is the charge that all three of them face. Wounding with intent is an offence contrary to Section 18 of the Offences Against the Person Act 1861. It seems odd that they're facing an allegation from an Act of Parliament that came into force over 150 years ago. 
But the Offences Against the Person Act remains the most commonly used statute for non-sexual assault offences in England and Wales. It contains offences of serious violence in Section 18, uh, which are the offences of wounding with intent and causing grievous bodily harm with intent. It then contains in Section 20 the less grave but still serious offences of unlawful wounding and GBH, both without the added element of intent. And then below these in Section 47 is the offence of assault occasioning actual bodily harm. I've posted a link to the Section 18 offence in the notes. If you look at it, you'll realise that it really does look like it was written not in the last century, but as it actually was in the century before that. To give you a flavour of what I mean, this is what Section 18 says. Whosoever shall unlawfully and maliciously, by any means whatsoever, wound or cause any grievous bodily harm to any person, or shoot any person, or, by drawing a trigger or in any other manner, attempt to discharge any kind of loaded arms at any person, with intent, in any of the cases aforesaid, to maim, disfigure or disable any person, or to do some other grievous bodily harm to any person, or with intent to resist or prevent the lawful apprehension or detainer of any person, shall be guilty of felony, and being convicted thereof shall be liable at the discretion of the court to be kept in penal servitude for life or for any term not less than three years, or to be imprisoned for any term not exceeding two years, with or without hard labour, and with or without solitary confinement. That gives you a flavour of the language of 19th century criminal justice. But to return to the 21st century, and to remove the unnecessary words of Section 18, it actually says this, Whosoever shall unlawfully and maliciously, by any means whatsoever, wound or cause any grievous bodily harm to any person, with intent to do some grievous bodily harm to any person, shall be guilty of an offence. So there are actually two main offences that Section 18 is now used for. The first is causing grievous bodily harm with intent, GBH with intent, and the second is wounding with intent. Grievous bodily harm, GBH, simply means really serious harm, and wounding means the breaking of the continuity of the whole of the skin or the breaking of the inner skin within the cheek, lip or urethra. To give you an example of how these offences are used, wounding is used for stabbings and bottle attacks which cause serious flesh injuries and sometimes worse, whereas GBH is often used for other really serious physical injuries such as a broken jaw or fractured eye socket. It's not just the seriousness of the injury that makes a Section 18 offence so serious in the eyes of the law, but also the element of intent, since to prove an allegation contrary to Section 18, the prosecution need to prove that at the time the really serious harm or wound was caused, the assailant intended to cause the victim really serious harm i.e. that not only was the victim wounded or otherwise seriously injured, but it was the intention that they should be seriously injured.
Whether it's a Section 18, a specific intent offence, or a Section 20 offence, one without the intention to cause really serious harm that a defendant faces, well, that really matters, since a Section 18 carries life and Section 20 carries a maximum of five years' imprisonment. Maximum sentences are very rarely imposed, but they nonetheless give you a flavour of the gravity of the offence you're dealing with. It's the element of intent that can make a Section 18 GBH or wounding with intent offence hard to prove. It's the reason why, in the majority of Section 18 trials, the jury will have the opportunity, if they see fit, to convict of the lesser offence under Section 20, i.e. of simple wounding or causing GBH, rather than the Section 18 offences with the specific intent element. To make a bit more sense of the difference between a Section 18 and a Section 20 offence, imagine this scenario. Jack gets into a fight. He punches a man who then twists and falls backwards in such an awkward way that he fractures his cheekbone on the curb on the pavement. Jack intended to punch the man and cause him some harm, but he did not intend to cause him the really serious harm which actually resulted. The prosecution would struggle to convince a jury that Jack intended, by a single punch, to cause really serious harm. So a Section 18 prosecution would almost certainly fail and Jack would be convicted of the lesser Section 20 offence of causing really serious harm, but without the element of intent. This is actually similar to one-punch manslaughter cases where a victim's death is far from the intention of the assailant. Imagine, on the other hand, that Jack punches a man who then falls to the ground, at which point Jack stamps repeatedly on his face, resulting in a broken cheekbone. In this situation, the evidence of intent to cause really serious harm being the repeated stamping is clear, and Jack is likely to be convicted of the far more serious Section 18 offence. To take another example, using a bottle... Imagine Jill gets into an argument in a pub and throws a bottle she is holding at the barman. It hits the barman's face above his eye and causes a deep wound from the blunt force trauma. Jill may face a charge of Section 18 wounding, but the jury may struggle to be satisfied so that they are sure that she intended to cause a really serious injury. Contrast that with the situation in which Jill smashes the bottle on the bar and then launches her now broken bottle at the barman, which hits him in the face and causes a wound. In this situation, the jury have ample evidence before them which proves intent, since what did she otherwise intend when she launched a broken bottle at someone's face? So that's the difference between a Section 18 and a Section 20. And that's what will have been explained to Aidan, Bianca and Connor as they prepare for their police interviews. To put my wig on again for a moment and explain some more about the law, this is what lawyers mean when they analyse an offence by the actus reus and mens rea of an offence. Actus reus, which in Latin means guilty act, is the act within an offence which the prosecution must prove. Mens rea, which in Latin means guilty mind, is the mental element within the offence which the prosecution must also prove. Lawyers still love a bit of Latin, so of course I'm delighted to throw some out there. There's even a bit more to come later on in this series. But to stick on this point for a moment, the actus reus, the guilty act of a Section 18 wounding, is the causing of a wound, and the mens rea, or mental element, is the intention to cause really serious harm.
So the obvious question for each suspect is, did you cause the wound? And secondly, did you, when doing so, intend to cause really serious harm? If the answer to both questions is yes, it amounts to an admission that they are guilty of the offence. Sounds simple, doesn't it? I'm a great believer in keeping things simple where possible. But in criminal cases, life is rarely that simple. And the case involving Aidan, Bianca and Connor is no exception. And there's one very clear reason here why this case is not simple, and it's this. Three suspects, Aidan, Bianca and Connor, have all been arrested for the same offence. It can hardly be said that they all took a bottle and smashed it into Daniel Clark's face. So how can it be said, even at this early stage, that they all bear responsibility? This comes down to the concept of what's commonly referred to as joint enterprise, the concept that one person who did not carry out the ultimate act of violence can still be considered equally responsible for that act as a matter of law. This is a complex area, but I said I believed in simplicity, so I'll try and set out the law on joint enterprise in a way that I hope makes sense. I don't intend to cover every aspect of joint enterprise, but rather to go over the relevant law as it applies in Aidan, Bianca and Connor's case. It applies to many situations of group violence where one person amongst them causes serious injury or death to another. The main case here is called Joggy, which you can find a link to in the podcast notes. This is a murder case I was actually initially instructed on, but was unable to do at the original trial due to various other professional commitments. But it was put into the very capable hands of others and ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court in 2016. In the case of Joggy, the court, the Supreme Court, substantially reformulated the test on joint enterprise, i.e. the test which should be applied to determine if person B, a secondary party, can be held responsible for an act such as a stabbing, shooting or bottling by person A, who is the principal party. Before we move on, remember that to prove an offence, the prosecution must prove both the actus reus and mens rea of that offence, i.e. in a section 18 wounding, they must prove both that person A caused the wound and that person A intended to cause the victim really serious harm. It's the same approach in the case of murder. The prosecution must prove both the actus reus and mens rea of that offence, i.e. they must prove that person A caused the victim's death and that person A intended either to kill the victim or to cause them really serious harm. It's not hard, if the evidence is sufficient, to see how an offence can be proved against person A, But how can it also be proved against person B, who was not, in our case, even holding the bottle? The case of Joggy provides the answer, as do several cases which followed, not least the Court of Appeal case of Noble in 2016, where it was put in this way, and I've changed this to fit in with Aidan, Bianca and Connor's case of Section 18 wounding. If one person, B, joins another, A, and person B realises that person A is out to cause really serious harm, and A, the principal, causes a wound to the victim and has the intent to cause really serious harm, and B intends to encourage or assist A's deliberate intention to cause really serious harm, then both A and B will be guilty. Not easy, is it? Since 
For the secondary party to be guilty, they must intend to encourage or assist the principal party's specific intention to cause really serious harm. Put another way, B must intentionally assist or encourage A who does the act. When doing the act, A must intend to cause really serious harm and B must intend that A would deliberately inflict really serious harm. To put this into a factual scenario, imagine that Steve and Chris go out together and get into an argument with another man. Chris pulls out a knife and threatens the man with it. Steve then shouts, stab him to death, and Chris then does exactly that. Then it's easy to see that Steve, by his words at the very least, intended that Chris would deliberately kill the victim. Similarly, if Chris is holding the knife and threatening to stab the man, and Steve then holds the man down while Chris launches into an attack on him with the knife, it isn't difficult to see how, by his conduct, Steve could be seen to have intended that Chris, at the very least, would stab the victim, intending to cause him either death or really serious harm. In Joggy, in the context of the outbreak of spontaneous violence, the following was said, and again, I slightly changed the quote for reasons of keeping it straightforward, but the quote is this. Liability as a secondary party depends on proof of intentional assistance or encouragement. If B joins with a group which he realises is out to cause serious injury, the jury may well infer that he intended to encourage or assist the deliberate infliction of serious bodily injury and or intended that that should happen if necessary. In that case, if A acts with intent to cause serious bodily injury and death results, A and B will each be guilty of murder. If, however, a person is a party to a violent attack on another without an intent to assist in the causing of death or really serious harm, but the violence escalates and results in death, he will not be guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. And that finishes the joggy quote. So for a secondary party, the question fundamentally is, when you joined in that attack, what did you intend? Ultimately, what a person intended will not come from what they say or what they admit or don't admit. Ultimately, it will be a question of fact for the jury to be inferred from all the evidence. Let's now go back to the police station. Aidan is the first person to go into the interview room. He's accompanied by his solicitor and across the table are Detective Inspector Williams and Detective Sergeant Fletcher. The interview is recorded and starts with D.I. Williams referring to who's in the room and reminding Aidan that he is under arrest on suspicion of wounding with intent. She then follows with the words of the caution, which we looked at in detail in episode one, as follows. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. D.I. Williams then briefly summarises the circumstances of Aidan's arrest, referring to the allegation that he was involved in a fight with a person called Daniel Clark, who suffered a serious facial injury and is currently recovering in hospital. D.I. Williams then asks her first question. Are you responsible for causing that injury? No, says Aidan. Then who is? I don't know. A bottle was used to cause that injury. Was it your bottle? asked D.I. Williams. No, says Aidan. 
So whose bottle was it? I didn't have a bottle. I asked whose bottle it was. Aidan replies, don't know, I didn't have a bottle. D.I. Williams then informs Aidan that club CCTV will be checked and would show if he was leaving carrying anything. Were you carrying anything? Not that I can think of, said Aidan. Let's go back, says D.I. Williams. What happened on the dance floor? At this stage, Aidan explains that he'd been minding his own business and dancing with his girlfriend, Bianca, when a blonde-haired lad, clearly Daniel, started messing with Bianca and grabbed hold of her. Aidan said that he reacted only verbally at first, but then Daniel had pushed him hard and Aidan responded in the same way by pushing back. Within seconds, he said, security had kicked them both out and wouldn't listen to a word he had to say about it. So, asked D.I. Williams, you were angry. Aidan said, well, I guess so, but not in the way that you mean. D.I. Williams continues, are you an angry person, Aidan? I wouldn't say so, no. Do you get violent when you're angry? No, says Aidan. D.I. Williams says, it's just that I've run a PNC check on you and it's not the first time you've been in trouble, is it? Aidan says that was ages ago. D.I. Williams continues, well, you were convicted of ABH just over 18 months ago for which you received a community order. And a year before that, you were convicted of a common assault for which you received a fine and compensation was awarded. Aidan says it was just a stupid thing. D.I. Williams says, but you turn to violence when you get annoyed. No. D.I. Williams continues, outside, you started on Daniel, didn't you? No, says Aidan, we had a few words, that's all. I just wanted to get home. D.I. Williams asks, and you were joined outside by your girlfriend, Bianca, and also your friend Connor, is that right? They came out, but we just wanted to go. But you didn't go, did you, says D.I. Williams. You and your mates stayed for a fight. He started it, said Aidan. How? Just came over, giving it all this and getting right into my face. But you wanted to go home, you said. Why didn't you just go home, Aidan? I couldn't. He was right up to me, then he started pushing me again. Is that when you hit him? He hit me. How? Punch me, right in the face. And D.I. Williams asked, and you responded, how? Aidan said, I was just defending myself. His mates were there too by now, shouting threats and all sorts. If you were there, you'd know. D.I. Williams said, but I wasn't there. And this is your chance to give your account of what happened. It's right to say that your friends were with you outside, isn't it? Shouting and screaming at Daniel and his friends. Everyone was shouting, said Aidan. What were they shouting? I don't know, just stuff. Did that stuff include that you and your friends were going to kill Daniel? What? No, just stuff, silly threats. D.I. Williams asked, Did that stuff include someone asking you, referring to Daniel, to cut him up? That's ridiculous, said Aidan. Because that's what happened, isn't it? You cut him up. Daniel said, I've had enough of this. D.I. Williams asked, that's when you smashed a bottle, isn't it? I've told you, said Aidan, I didn't have a bottle. D.I. Williams continued, witnesses heard the sound of a bottle smashing just before Daniel was injured. How do you account for that? I didn't hear that, said Aidan. You smashed a bottle to use as a weapon, didn't you, to cause injury to Daniel? Not true, said Aidan. And then you used that bottle by pushing it into Daniel's face, didn't you? It wasn't me. Then who was it? asked D.I. Williams. It wasn't me. If it wasn't you, who was it? No one. I don't know. It was nothing to do with me. 
The thing is, Aidan, continued D.I. Williams, we have a young lad who's lying in hospital and possibly disfigured for life, all because someone pushed a broken bottle into his face. Now, someone did it. And what I want to know is, was it you? No, said Aidan, I don't know what happened. It's all a blur. You did it, didn't you? No. And you were egged on by your mates? No. Well, they weren't just politely standing around, were they? I don't know. Well, you were there. I don't know, said Aidan. OK. So you didn't have a bottle, said D.I. Williams. You didn't smash a bottle, and you didn't push a bottle into Daniel Clark's face. That's right, said Aidan. So you didn't really do anything wrong. That's right. So why does such an innocent man leg it from the scene, leaving someone behind him who is obviously seriously injured? I panicked, I guess, said Aidan. I just wanted out of there. You said earlier, said D.I. Williams, that you wanted to go home. But that was before a bottle had been pushed into Daniel Clark's face. Why did you run? I told you, said Aidan. I panicked. Or was it because you just put Daniel Clark on the ground? You knew that he was seriously injured by what you'd done, and you were doing your best to avoid getting caught. Not true, said Aidan. I didn't do this. Whatever you may think, I didn't do this. Those were the key parts of Aidan's interview. In summary, he said he acted in self-defence, he didn't smash or use a bottle, and is not responsible for the injury. The next person up for interview is Bianca. Bianca takes a different approach, and she provides a prepared statement which states the following. A man with blonde hair, who I understand now is called Daniel Clark, accosted me on the dance floor at the nightclub. He aggressively grabbed me and turned me to face him. I pulled away from him, at which time he started pushing my boyfriend Aidan Johnson. The bouncers then threw both Aidan and Daniel Clark out. I followed soon afterwards. Outside, I saw Daniel Clark pushing Aidan and he assaulted him with his fists. I believe that Aidan did no more than defend himself as best he could. Daniel Clark had at least two other friends with him who were shouting threats. A fight erupted, but I took no part in a fight and I made no threats towards any person. I was not responsible for causing any injury to Daniel Clark. I left the scene because I was following my boyfriend and for no other reason. At that stage, I was not aware of the extent of Daniel Clark's injuries. This prepared statement is read out, at which stage Bianca's solicitor informs the police officers in the interview room that Bianca will be making no comments to any questions put to her, and that's exactly what she does. The final person up for interview is Connor, and Connor also provides a prepared statement, and it says this. I am not responsible for assaulting Daniel Clark or for causing any injury to him. I admit that I left the club when I became aware that my friend Aidan had gone outside. When I went outside, there was a fight taking place between Aidan, Daniel Clark and what I understood to be a group of Daniel Clark's friends. It appeared to me that Aidan was doing his best to defend himself against a group attack, of which I took no part. When Aidan ran off, I followed on behind him. I was not aware that any injury had been caused to Daniel Clark and I was only doing what I felt was the best thing to get away from the area and to a place of safety. That's the end of his prepared statement. Just as happened with Bianca, Connor's statement is read out and the police are informed that Connor will be making no comment to all questions asked of him. And just like Bianca, he is as good as his solicitor's word.
What would happen in many cases at this stage is that the police investigation would continue and the suspects would be released on bail pending further investigations. Once additional evidence was obtained, the suspects could return for another interview when all the additional evidence, if any, could be put to them. At that stage, or soon afterwards, a charging decision could be made, as well as a decision whether to release them on bail pending their first court appearance or to hold them in custody until the first court appearance takes place. In more urgent situations, however, the police might want to detain a suspect and not release them on bail. But as we know, there are time limits for how long a suspect can be held in custody without charge. A maximum of 96 hours, that's with every possible extension available. In these urgent situations for serious offences, the police will have to see if they can get what's known as a threshold charging decision on a case, the evidence for which is incomplete. If they can charge a suspect, they can then hold them in police custody pending their first court appearance. If they can't get a charging decision, they'll have no option but to release the suspect either on bail or what's known as under investigation until a later date. In our case, there is some further evidence that the police will be looking for. As was mentioned in Aidan's interview, the police will be checking CCTV from the club as well as seeing if there's any further CCTV, such as from local shops or private homes, that might have captured the fight outside the club itself. The police have taken initial statements from Daniel Clark's friends, Ethan and Finn. They've also taken statements from nightclub security, but they might want to get additional detail from them to try and pinpoint what they saw of Bianca and Connor's involvement in the brawl outside. The police also don't have a statement from the injured Daniel Clark as to his version of events. From their perspective, Daniel Clark will be a key witness to what actually happened in the early hours of that Saturday morning but obtaining a statement from him now is out of the question. In fact, by Saturday afternoon, the police have received an update about Daniel Clark's condition, and it appears that he's not doing at all well at hospital, although precise details have not yet been passed on. The police will also need to obtain detailed medical evidence in due course. It seems that there's been a failure to collect much, if any, physical evidence from the scene, and many fragments of glass from the bottle which could have been collected were widely dispersed by people both arriving at and leaving the club. A neck of a bottle has been recovered, and this will be tested for DNA and fingerprints, as well as to match any glass fragments that may have been dispersed onto the clothing of Aidan, Bianca and Connor, and also Daniel, Ethan and Finn. Fragments of glass taken from Daniel's face will also be tested against the bottle with a view to identifying it as the weapon. In short, there's still work to do to make this case ready for court. The police may rightly feel that the case is not yet ready for the CPS to make a standard charging decision. In a moment, I'm going to look at how the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS, to whom the police must go for a charging decision, actually go about deciding on whether to charge in both standard and urgent cases. But before I do, let's move on to bail, since if collecting the relevant evidence is going to delay matters, the suspects must be released and a bail decision will have to be made. In episode one, we saw that when Aidan, Bianca and Connor arrived at the police station, the custody officer had to decide if there was sufficient evidence to charge them or any one of them, that's section 37 of PACE, or, if not, they must be released with or without bail, unless 
the custody officer has reasonable grounds to believe that their detention is necessary to secure or preserve evidence relating to the offence they're under arrest for or to obtain such evidence by questioning them. Well, at this point in time, Aidan, Bianca and Connor have been interviewed and the collection of additional evidence is awaited. So it's fair to say that the conditions required to detain them without charge no longer exist since their detention is not necessary to secure or preserve evidence relating to the offence they're under arrest for, and nor is it necessary to obtain such evidence by questioning them. So, for this reason, section 34, subsection 2 of PACE provides that if at any time a custody officer becomes aware that the grounds for detaining a suspect have ceased to apply and the custody officer is not aware of any other grounds for their continued detention, it shall be the duty of the custody officer to order their immediate release from custody. Under section 34, subsection 5 and subsection 5A of PACE, where the custody officer considers that there is a need for further investigation of any matter the suspect was detained for at any time during their detention, they must be released on bail if the preconditions for bail are satisfied. And the preconditions of bail are set out in section 50A of PACE, and they're as follows. First, the custody officer must be satisfied that releasing the person on bail is necessary and proportionate in all the circumstances, having regard in particular to any conditions of bail which would be imposed. And second, the custody officer must have considered any representations made by the person or legal representative. And that's another reason why having a solicitor at the police station can be helpful. Section 50A goes on to say that in determining whether releasing the person on bail is necessary and proportionate in all of the circumstances, the custody officer must have regard in particular to A, the need to secure that the suspect surrenders to custody, B, the need to prevent offending by the suspect, C, the need to safeguard victims of crime and witnesses taking into account any identified vulnerabilities they have, D, the need to safeguard the suspect taking into account any identified vulnerabilities, and finally E, the need to manage risks to the public. If the preconditions of bail are not met, then a suspect will be released on what's known as being under investigation by the police. Where there is no further investigation to carry out and insufficient evidence to charge a suspect or offer an out-of-court disposal, then the person will be released with no further action. In bail cases, particularly where violence has occurred and a suspect must be released, the police will be concerned not just to ensure that the suspect returns to the police station when required to do so, but also that victims and witnesses are safeguarded, as well as considering any risks to the public. In managing these risks, the police are entitled to impose bail conditions. Conditions of bail can be imposed when they are considered necessary, for a number of reasons, to ensure that the suspect returns to the police station does not abscond, such as requiring them to give up their passport, to give a surety, which is where someone undertakes to pay a sum of money on their behalf if they fail to show up, or to report regularly at the police station. Conditions can also be imposed to prevent them committing an offence on bail or interfering with witnesses or otherwise obstructing the course of justice. This could, for example, require them to live at a certain address, to have no contact with certain individuals or to keep away from a specified geographical area. 
in the same way that can be required by court bail conditions. Conditions can also be used for a suspect's own protection. So where there is, for example, significant anger against an individual in their local community, they could be required to stay clear of that area. In standard cases, the initial bail period is up to 28 days, and this can be extended to three months. And it runs from the date of the arrest, not the date of their release from custody. If necessary, bail can be extended at a later date, but this does require certain conditions to be met, including that there are reasonable grounds at that stage for suspecting the person on bail to be guilty of the offence, and reasonable grounds for believing bail is necessary and proportionate, taking into account any of the bail conditions imposed. Further extensions will only be authorised in exceptionally complex cases. No such restrictions, however, attach to time limits for people released under investigation. And this is really the Wild West so far as the law is concerned. There's a document called the National Police Chief's Council Operational Guidance for Pre-Charge Bail and Released Under Investigation, January 2019. There's a link to that in the notes. Which many involved in the criminal justice system may think is a statement of aspiration rather than reality. And it says, amongst other things, investigations for which subjects are on release under investigation must be conducted expeditiously to ensure all parties are not subject to long delays, which can be stressful and lead to witness issues at future court trials. It also says that once a suspect has been released, investigations must have a documented supervisory review at least every 30 days until the investigation has been completed and a disposal actioned. And it says, finally... Inspectors and superintendents will need to satisfy themselves that release under investigation cases are being managed expeditiously and whether further investigation is appropriate. Yeah, enough of that. We know that the offence Aidan, Bianca and Connor are suspected of is a serious offence. And we know that Aidan has two convictions for previous violence, albeit of a significantly less serious nature. Other than that, two of the suspects, Connor and Bianca, have nothing on their police record so far as violence is concerned to cause the police any concern. So, in the normal course of events, despite the seriousness of the offence, all three suspects might be candidates for bail with appropriate conditions. But I'll come back to this, because at this stage, I want to take a look at how the CPS go about deciding whether a suspect should be charged. The most important document for making a charging decision is the CPS Code for Crown Prosecutors. It's supplemented by another document called the Director's Guidance on Charging, the Director being the head of the CPS, who is the DPP, or Director of Public Prosecutions. Links to both of these documents can be found in the podcast notes. Most prosecutions in England and Wales are carried out by the CPS. The CPS need to authorise charge. Only some lower-level offences like low-value shoplifting can be commenced by the police without being referred to the CPS, although if the case goes to court, they must be reviewed by the CPS before the first hearing at the magistrate's court. There are other public authorities who prosecute cases, such as the Department of Work and Pensions, the Environment Agency, the Food Standard Agency, the Gambling Commission, the Health and Safety Executive and the Serious Fraud Office. Private prosecutions can also be brought, such as by the Post Office, 
and we know what happened there. Private prosecutions deserve time all to themselves, so I'm not going to dwell on those now and instead stick to public prosecutions brought by the CPS on behalf of the Crown. In most circumstances, to charge someone or to offer an alternative to prosecution, i.e. an out-of-court disposal such as a caution, the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS or other public prosecuting authority will have to consider a two-stage test by answering two questions. Just before I move on to those questions, I just want to add something to avoid confusion. Up to this point, when I've referred to a police caution, I mean the caution on arrest or interview when the police say, you do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you fail to mention when questioned, blah, 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 blah. This differs from the type of police caution I've just referred to, which is an out-of-court disposal used as an alternative to a formal prosecution. It can either be a simple caution or a conditional caution, and it's a way of registering usually low-level offences without taking more formal court action. The reason out-of-court disposals are worth mentioning here is because when a charging decision is being made, the CPS will look to consider if any alternatives to a formal prosecution are suitable in the circumstances. So, back to charging. The usual test which will be applied in deciding whether a suspect should be charged is called the full code test. It requires the CPS to answer two fundamental questions. Question one, is there sufficient evidence to provide a realistic prospect of conviction? If the answer is yes, then the next question is this. Question two, is a prosecution required in the public interest? The full code test is used when an investigation has taken place and all outstanding reasonable lines of inquiry have been pursued, or where, in a continuing investigation, the prosecutor is satisfied that any further evidence or material is unlikely to affect the application of the full code test, whether in favour of or against a prosecution. In more limited and urgent circumstances, in serious cases where the investigation hasn't been completed and the full code test isn't met, a charging decision can be made using what's known as the threshold test, but we'll get to that. Stage one of the full code test, is there a realistic prospect of conviction, is an evidential decision requiring the prosecutor to carry out an objective assessment of the strength of the evidence. This includes consideration of any defence which has been put forward. The prosecutor must decide if the evidence is strong enough to provide a realistic prospect of conviction. And paragraph 4.7 describes a realistic prospect of conviction to mean that an objective, impartial and reasonable jury or bench of magistrates or judge hearing a case alone properly directed and acting in accordance with the law is more likely than not to convict the defendant of the charge alleged. This is a far lower test than the standard of proof required at trial in a criminal court because for a jury or magistrates to convict a defendant at trial, the prosecution must prove its case beyond reasonable doubt, i.e. so the jury or magistrates are satisfied so that they are sure of the defendant's guilt. This level of proof is not applied at the charging stage. In reaching a decision on the evidence, prosecutors have to consider the reliability and also the credibility of the evidence, as well as whether it would be admissible, i.e. that it's of a kind that would be permitted to be used in court. 
Prosecutors will also need to consider whether there is any further material which may affect their assessment of the sufficiency of the evidence, such as material held by the police which is examined or even unexamined, and material which may be obtained through further reasonable lines of inquiry. The requirement to consider further material reflects the prosecution duty of disclosure. We'll look at this in a lot more detail in a later episode. But it's a duty to provide the defence with any information and evidence which may undermine the prosecution case or otherwise assist the defence case. However, where prior to commencement of a prosecution, consideration of this material so undermines the prosecution case that there's no longer a realistic prospect of conviction, no prosecution should follow. Examples perhaps include CCTV evidence which completely undermines the account of a vital witness or text messages which demonstrate a crucial witness to have been untruthful in their account. If the prosecutor reaches the view that the evidence is not sufficient, then the case cannot go any further and no prosecution can follow. If, on the other hand, the prosecutor reaches the view that there is, on balance, sufficient evidence to provide a realistic prospect of conviction, then the next question must be asked, is a prosecution required in the public interest? This, of course, is question two in the full code test. The code for Crown Prosecutors clearly states, paragraph 4.10, that it has never been the rule that a prosecution will automatically take place once the evidential stage has been met. It's important to bear that in mind. Instead, the Code adopts the position that a prosecution will usually take place unless the prosecutor is satisfied that there are public interest factors tending against prosecution, which outweigh those in favour. In some cases, says the Code, the prosecutor may be satisfied that the public interest can properly be served by offering the offender the opportunity to have the matter dealt with by an out-of-court disposal rather than bringing a prosecution. Although the usual process is for prosecutors to first consider stage one, the evidential test, before stage two, the public interest test. The code does accept that at paragraph 4.4, there will be cases where it is clear prior to reviewing all the evidence that the public interest does not require a prosecution. So what does the public interest mean and what factors are taken into account? What I'm going to give you isn't an exhaustive list, so other matters can properly be taken into account. But in summary, the matters that are considered are as follows. A. How serious is the alleged offence? The more serious it is, the more likely it is that a prosecution is required. B. What is the level of culpability of the subject? The greater the culpability, the more likely it is that a prosecution is required. This includes the level of involvement, planning, premeditation, benefit from the offending, previous involvement with the criminal justice system, the likelihood of reoffending, the suspect's age, maturity, and any significant mental or physical ill health or disability. Suspects are likely to have a much lower level of culpability if they have been compelled, coerced, or exploited, particularly if they are the victim of a crime linked to their offending. C. 
What are the circumstances of and the harm caused to the victim? The victim's circumstances are considered to be highly relevant. The more vulnerable the victim, the more likely it is that a prosecution is required. Was the suspect in a position of authority or trust towards the victim? Was the victim serving the public? Was the alleged offence motivated by any form of discrimination against the victim? If so, it's more likely that prosecution is required. Prosecutors should take into account the victim's views as to the impact of the offence on them, and this may also include obtaining the views of the victim's family. If there is evidence that a prosecution is likely to have an adverse impact on the victim's physical or mental health, it may make a prosecution less likely. D. What was the suspect's age and maturity at the time of the offence? Significant weight must be attached to the age of the suspect if they're under 18. Their best interests and welfare must be considered, including whether a prosecution is likely to have an adverse impact on their future prospects, such that it's disproportionate to the seriousness of the offending. The Code states that prosecutors must have regard to the principal aim of the youth justice system, which is to prevent offending by children and young people. E. What's the impact on the community? The greater the impact of the offending on the community, the more likely it is that a prosecution is required. Prevalence of an offence in a community may cause particular harm to that community, increasing the seriousness of the offending. F. Is prosecution a proportionate response? This means whether or not prosecution is proportionate to the likely outcome. This includes consideration of the cost of the CPS and the wider criminal justice system, especially where it could be regarded as excessive when weighed against any likely penalty. Although no public interest decision should be based on this factor alone and regard should be had to all public interest considerations. Also, cases should be capable of being prosecuted in a way that is consistent with principles of effective case management. For example, in a case involving multiple suspects, prosecution might be reserved for the main participants in order to avoid excessively long and complex proceedings. And finally, G. Do sources of information require protecting? In cases where public interest immunity does not apply, Special care should be taken when proceeding with a prosecution where details may need to be made public that could harm sources of information or ongoing investigations or international relations or national security. These cases must be kept under continuing review. So, where does that leave us? We have already looked at the need to obtain further evidence in this case, and a prosecutor may take a conservative view that the evidential test has not yet been met and further evidence is required. If the prosecutor were to go on and apply the public interest test, there is really no doubt that a prosecution would be required in the public interest. I mentioned that the full code test is the usual test to be applied and it's used when an investigation has taken place and all outstanding reasonable lines of inquiry have been pursued or where in a continuing investigation the prosecutor's satisfied that any further evidence or material is unlikely to affect the application of the test. However, in more limited and urgent circumstances, in serious cases where the investigation has not been completed and the full code test is not met, 
a charging decision can be made using what's known as the threshold test. This is designed to deal with situations where all the evidence has not yet been gathered, but the seriousness or circumstances of the case justify an immediate charging decision. And there are substantial grounds to object to the suspect's release on bail. This would usually be because he or she presents a substantial risk of interfering with witnesses or with evidence or of committing further offences or failing to attend court. For a charging decision to be made based on the threshold test, five conditions need to be met. Number one is this. Are there reasonable grounds to believe that the suspect has committed the offence? Prosecutors need to consider all the material or information currently available and be satisfied that the material to be relied on at that stage or at this stage is reliable, credible and capable of being put into an admissible format for presentation in court. Question number two or condition number two. Can further identifiable evidence be obtained within a reasonable period of time, which, when considering all the evidence together, will provide a realistic prospect of conviction? Number three, does the seriousness or circumstances of the case justify the making of an immediate charging decision? This should be linked to the level of risk created by granting bail. So, number four. Are there continuing substantial grounds to object to bail in accordance with the Bail Act 1976? And in all the circumstances of the case, is it proper to do so? Prosecutors should not accept without careful inquiry any unjustified or unsupported assertions about risk if release on bail were to take place. Any determination must be based on a proper risk assessment which reveals that the suspect is not suitable to be bailed, even with substantial conditions. The examples include a dangerous suspect who poses a serious risk of harm to a particular person or to the public, or a suspect who poses a serious risk of absconding or interfering with witnesses. And finally, to number five, is it in the public interest to charge the suspect? If yes, the suspect can be charged. On the information available to them at the time, prosecutors must apply the same public interest factors used in the second stage of the full code test. Any decision to charge under the threshold test must be kept under review, including assessing the evidence to ensure the charge is appropriate and that objections to bail continue to be justified. As soon as the further evidence is received, the full code test must be applied. There's no obvious reason why, in Aidan, Bianca and Connor's case, that an urgent charging decision is required. Or at least there wasn't until late Saturday afternoon when a decision was about to be made about releasing the suspects on conditional bail. What changed was not expected by anyone, but would have a profound effect on what was to follow, as well as a profound effect on Aidan, Bianca and Connor, and on Daniel's friends and family. What occurred on Saturday afternoon was that Daniel died in hospital. Why he died, we'll look at in a later episode. But what the police and the CPS are aware of is that Daniel's cause of death can be directly attributed to the harm that he suffered when he sustained serious injuries early that Saturday morning. 
What this means for Aidan, Bianca and Connor is that the charge they are facing is not one of wounding with intent, but instead one of murder. And for them, both now and later on, that will have significant consequences. And that is where we are heading in episode three. Until then, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, press all those lovely buttons with love hearts and smiley faces. And I'll look forward to seeing you all again very soon.